The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, for those who I may not have met yet, my name is Eric Shelley. I'm one of the elders here at Fathom. Um, and it's a privilege to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. You've probably heard the saying before that there's two things that you don't talk about at a party or at dinner or at social gatherings. What are those two things? Good. Politics and religion. So um, hopefully you're aware that we're in a church, so we're going to talk about religion today. Um, But I'm also going to take a little bit of a risk and talk some politics this morning as well. Does that sound good? Y'all excited? Yeah. Um, Don't get too uncomfortable. I'm not going to be taking any strong stances on any issues or backing any candidates in the upcoming election. Um, I'm not that dumb. But what I'm going to talk about is what really for the past few months has been the uh, the big political story in our country. And what, what's that been? Impeachment? Is it, you, guys, you guys following? Yeah. So um, just to, to bring you up to speed, in December, our House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald Trump. And this was done based on concerns over how he may have negotiated with Ukraine in a way that would likely help him politically um, in this upcoming 2020 election. And these concerns were that that Trump abused his power in doing so, and then he obstructed Congress when they investigated it. And so I'm not going to get into the specifics of the allegations against him. I'm not going to give any of his defenses or the the accusations. Um, I'm not going to go there. But what I want to talk a little bit about is how the House of Representatives voted on this issue. And if you've been following this, you've seen that the vote to impeach Trump was almost entirely along party lines, almost entirely along Democrat or Republican, uh, Republican lines. Every single Republican in the House of Representatives voted against impeachment. That is, they didn't think that what Trump did was an impeachable offense. Every single Democrat except for two voted for impeachment. And so now the Democrats have a majority in the House, and so by that majority, the House voted that, um, they they voted to impeach the president. And so the next phase of this process is that the case is being brought before the Senate, and that was, they just voted to approve that this week. That's what's happening now. So in the Senate, if two-thirds of the Senate vote to impeach the president, then he's going to be removed from office. If less than two-thirds vote to impeach, then he'll, he'll remain in office. And most political experts expect the Senate, where Republicans have the majority, to vote along party lines just as the House did. And so the likely result is that the House is going to vote to impeach Trump, the Senate will vote to acquit, and not much is going to change. In this instance, he'll, Trump will continue as president. However, our government, the president, the House, the Senate, will all have spent several months being uh, distracted from from doing their real jobs um, and addressing some of the other issues in the country. They've been focused on, um, largely focused on this impeachment process. Now, the impeachment process was designed by our country's founders as as really a check and balance on on the president. It was intended to be a constitutional mechanism by which, um, to to ensure that a president doesn't, doesn't abuse his power. But what we have going on in Congress today, unfortunately, isn't that at all. Um, What we have going on in Congress today is is really Congress voting based based on which team they're on. You have Team Donkey or Team Elephant. You have Team Red State, Team Blue State. Team Democrat, Team Republican. Team Liberal, Team Conservative. 
Democrats are largely critical of and, and against President Trump, and the Republicans are largely supportive of the president. This is called partisan politics. It's voting along the lines of what your party or what your team thinks. And this current impeachment process is really has been a, a party-line vote. It doesn't appear to be the constitutional check that our founders had in mind when they wrote this into the Constitution, when they wrote the process of impeachment into the Constitution. Now, had even one or two or three Republicans been convinced to vote for impeachment, maybe this would have uh, some more legs to it. But right now, it just looks like a group of politicians being political. They're voting along party lines. They're choosing sides. They're choosing which team they're on. But there are political and historical consequences to this. And so regardless of the outcome, the impeachment of a U.S. president is a black eye for our government and for our country. And at the very least, this has been a major distraction for our, our representatives. There are likely other issues that could have been addressed uh, and voted on during this time that weren't. This sort of distraction has likely delayed other things from getting done in our country. And so when our government picks teams and acts solely along party lines, the entire country suffers. And so I spent the introduction here of my sermon talking about politics and about the president's impeachment because something similar took place in the church at Corinth. It was serious enough that it prompted the Apostle Paul to address it in his letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church wasn't getting along. They were choosing teams. They were acting along party lines, so to speak. And when the church or when Christians can't get along, the body of Christ suffers. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So Fathom, we typically preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And sometime last year, um, I got the thought, or, or maybe it was a prompting, that with where we're at as a church, that Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, um, should be our first study in the new year. I, I just, as I was, I was reading through it, I was doing a study on it myself, and just kind of continued to hear over and over that Paul's got some words for our church um, at this time. And, and so I really got the sense that it had a lot to do or it had a lot to teach us about being a church and what that means and what that looks like for a variety of reasons. And I shared this with Chris and we both, both thought and prayed about it. And, and Chris came to a similar conclusion that I did, that, that Paul's words do have a lot of application for us um, and for, for where we are as a church right now. And so I'm excited to be starting this, uh, this teaching, this study with you. We started our study of the book last week, uh, and that was the, the first passage was really an introduction and, and the greeting section of Paul's letter. And he, he told the Corinthians why he was writing to them. He told them why he cared for them so much and why he cared enough to confront them on some of the issues that he's been made aware of. And so in chapter one of this letter, Paul really addresses two issues. <clears throat> Both of these issues were causing divisions in the Corinthian church, and they're so serious that he addresses them first in his letter. He kind of greets them, and then he jumps right into what is most important. And this is like when I'm traveling for work, and I call home to talk to my wife, Anne. We, you know, we, we typically greet each other, we say hello, and then we, we, we talk about what's most important. These are the things that are, are most important. They're, they're first and foremost on our minds. Like if it's wintertime and the furnace is out, that's far more important than what Anne and the kids are doing for dinner. We'll discuss how to get that furnace repaired first, and then maybe we'll discuss their dinner plans after that. And so the first issue that Paul discusses involves the church exalting human leaders, and we're going to discuss that today. And the second issue is the church exalting human wisdom, and we'll discuss that next week. So 
Let's turn in our passage today, if you're not already there. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. And we often say here at Fathom that we're not particular about what type of Bible you're using. It may be your own Bible. It might be a Bible app on your phone. It could be one of the hard-bound uh, Bibles underneath your chair. Um, we, don't, we don't care like, what, what type of Bible you're opening up, but we do care that you're opening up the text on your own and, and reading along with us. This provides accountability. Otherwise, I could just get up here and say really whatever I want and tell you that it's the Word of God. But if you have it here, it provides accountability to me. Um, and I think you learn better when you're, when you're reading along, along for yourself. So if you're using the hardbound Bible, we're on page 952. Again, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. We read, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So the first two verses of this section, verses 10 and 11, they really give context to the rest of the passage and context to what Paul wants to teach and correct on, and that's namely the, the divisions in the church. And I'm actually going to start with verse 11 first, and then we'll go back to verse 10. Verse 11 simply states and simply gives us insight into how Paul became aware of this issue in the church. It says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Chloe's people told him about this issue. And we, we don't know much about Chloe or her people or, or who they were, why they told Paul. But I think there's a few things that we can, we can observe about this. Chloe's people had concerns about what was going on in the church, and they addressed them through the proper channel. They went to Paul. This is, this is like going to, going to the elders of the church with a concern. The application for Fathom is that if you see things in our church body that concern you, maybe it's people behaving poorly or divisions or cliques being formed, whatever that may be, the proper process is to address it through church leadership, through the elders. We don't gossip about it. You don't just talk to your friends or even your D group about it. You go to the elders. You go to church leadership so that they can address it. And secondly, Chloe's people, they put their name on it. They were, they were accountable and unafraid of Paul mentioning their name as raising this issue. I had a manager that I worked with once who, who operated on what he called his anonymous sources. And he would, he would allow certain people to come to him in, in the quiet of his office, the privacy of his office, and they could complain or give their opinion. And then he would act on that and only that. He wouldn't get another side of the story. He would just, just act. And, and it led to people in the department taking sides and forming cliques and create a generally unhealthy work environment, similar to what was happening in Corinth. There's really little or no accountability in my work department because no one, no one attached their name to what was being said. But Paul mentions Chloe's people here and, and, and provides some, some transparency and accountability. So Chloe's people report that there's quarreling among the church family, and it's this issue of quarreling that Paul is addressing here. So now let's go back to verse 10. He starts by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts by appealing to the church broadly and under the authority of Jesus. The ESV or the English Standard Version here uses the word brothers, but the Greek word used here is Adelphoi. This is where we get the name of my hometown of Philadelphia from. Adelphoi is referring, Adelphoi is a little bit different than Philadelphia. It's, it's referring not just to brothers, but to brothers and sisters or siblings or family. Paul's using this term of family 
to remind the Corinthian churches, church that they are, in fact, a family. They're not colleagues. They're not just like contacts. They certainly aren't adversaries. They aren't even friends. They're family. All those others, colleagues, contacts, even friends, can come and go. You can have a disagreement with a friend and, and really decide not to be friends anymore. But family is always family, even when there's friction, disagreements, and conflict. And that's what, that's what Paul's reminding them of here. And so he goes on in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So next, Paul states that he wants the entire family to agree to not have any divisions and to be united in the same mind and judgment. And we need to spend some time here unpacking this part a little bit because is Paul stating that the entire church needs to agree on everything at all times, in all circumstances? Is he asking for the entire church to have the same tastes, opinions, views, and perspectives? Of course not. Paul's not teaching uniformity here because that's not realistic. But he does say that we should all agree and be united in the same mind and judgment. So what exactly does that mean? I think he means that when it comes to the church, to the family, that harmony and unity should be the goal. The Greek word here for divisions is schismata, which means tears or cracks. So Paul's not making an appeal here for total agreement on everything, but he's making the appeal for harmony and for unity. And for the removal of the divisions, tears, cracks, cracks or fractures that are forming. The ESV uses the word united here in verse 10, but other translations use the phrase perfectly joined together. And the Greek for this phrase is really a medical term. It refers to the setting of a bone that was broken or out of joint. And so Paul is saying that the divisions in the church are like an injury to our body. When we've got a cold or a virus or a cut on our hand or even a broken bone, our body's not operating at full strength or full capacity. We're not 100%. Later on in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's again going to use this metaphor of the body for the church. In chapter 12, he's referring to spiritual gifts and how we're all given different gifts to use to serve the church. Some are teachers. Some have the gift of helping or service. Some have the gift of administration. And he says that each gift is like a body part. All have different functions, but all are essential to the overall operation of the body. In verses 24 through 27 of chapter 12, I'm going to put these up on the screen. Paul says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think Paul's making a similar argument here. As different parts of the same church body, we're all going to have different preferences and opinions on things. But if we allow those differences to become tears or fractures, then it's like an infected wound or a broken bone or even a serious cold. Our body's not going to operate well if those things exist. As I stated earlier, when the church or when Christians can't get along, the body of Christ suffers. But if we're working together in Christ and looking and seeking the best direction for his body, his church, both the global church and Fathom Church, 
then the church can operate well. It can move the gospel forward. It can do so in a healthy manner that's attractive to others. And so that's the impact of the disagreements and divisions in the church. It's like having an infection or a broken bone. Let's, keep, keep, let's move on here and talk. We're going to talk next about, specifically about what caused the division in the church at Corinth. If we move on to verse 12, we read, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So right here, Paul states that the issue in the church was, that was causing divisions and, and fractures. He simply put, the Corinthian church was choosing teams. They were choosing which of the leaders or teachers or preachers they preferred to follow. Some chose to follow only Paul and his teachings. Others, Apollos, others, Cephas. Um, Cephas was another name for Peter. And so others were just saying that they follow Christ. And some commentators believe that Paul listed these four names just to be illustrative. He listed them instead of the names of the actual leaders of the church. Other commentators think that these were the actual teams that, that the church was choosing. And, and I think regardless of which is true, that we can make several points here. And the first is that in the culture at that time, this type of allegiance to a leader was normal and was typical. In the Corinthian culture at the time, pupils or apprentices of secular teachers, they would pledge exclusive loyalty to that teacher. And it was common for the pupils of, of some rival teachers to, to brag to each other and almost debate about which teacher was better. And so the Corinthians who learned about Christ through Paul or through Apollos or Peter were simply doing a similar thing. They were being loyal to the one they saw as their teacher. But Paul calls this type of loyalty idolatrous. The second thing we can say about this is that we do the same thing today. It's human nature to enjoy following leaders, and especially leaders that are exciting or engaging or charismatic. And it's human nature to associate closely with those leaders or teachers who've made a big impact on us, whether it's spiritually or whether it's otherwise, we do this. We read their books. We share links or quotes about them on, on Facebook or Twitter. We talk about them. We bring them up in conversations. However, when we do this, especially when we do it in the church, we can fall into emphasizing the messenger instead of the message. Instead of focusing on Christ and his word, we focus on Christ's servants and their words. Look around you this morning. I want to take a quick poll. Raise your hand if you tend to sit in the same seat or general area in this room every Sunday. There's a good, good number of hands, hands up here. My family and I do. We're typically right in the front corner, um, so, so we can keep an eye on the keyboard. Um, <clears throat> We, uh, <laughs> but do you, know why a lot, do you know why a lot of us raised our hands this morning? Someone told me recently that people often make a subconscious association with where they were when they grew spiritually or connected with Christ in a new way. And so they tend to go back to that place where they learned. And we don't knowingly do this. No one really says, oh, when I was in the third row of the, of the, from the aisle on this side of the, 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 the chapel, I, I connected with Christ in a new way. We don't, we don't come out and say that, but we might do that subconsciously. And I think we do it with teachers also. Maybe Matt Chandler explains something to you more clearly than you've ever heard it taught before, 
Or maybe Tim Keller preached a sermon that was especially memorable and applicable to your life when you heard it. Or perhaps Chris Martin engaged you with a truth of scripture that you'd never known before. And that's great. That's what preachers are supposed to do. But we can be tempted to align ourselves with teachers over and above the scriptural truth that they're teaching. And we do this both knowingly and unknowingly. And when we do this, it's a form of idolatry. And that's what Paul is pointing out as being wrong here. In verse 13, Paul points the readers to Christ. He points that out that it is Christ who we follow. Only Christ was crucified for the penalty of our sins. It's only Christ who triumphed over death so that we might have eternal life. No one's baptized in the name of the pastor doing the baptism. Instead, we're baptized in the name of Christ. Now, if you were baptized by Chris Martin out in the front parking lot, you were baptized in Jesus' name, not Chris's name or anyone else's name. Dead to sin, but alive in Christ. That's what we say when we baptize here at Fathom. It's, it's the unity in Christ that makes the body of Christ, his church, healthy, effective, and attractive. As I said earlier, when the church or when Christians can't get along, the body of Christ suffers. But when they can get along, when they can unite together, when together they choose Christ instead of choosing teams, then the body and the church can do powerful things. Paul goes on to further make his point in verses 14 through 16. Here we read, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Now, if people learn from a teacher and then associate themselves closely to that teacher, how much more might they do so if it's someone who baptized them? And that's Paul's point here. Early on in his ministry, Paul baptized a few people, but as his ministry and as the churches he planted grew, it was the local leaders that did the baptizing. And this was true for Jesus also. Jesus didn't baptize people, but his disciples did. We read that in John 4. And Peter and some of the other early leaders in the church followed the same practice. This was done so that people would not boast about who baptized them or whose name they were baptized in, because all we're baptized in the name of Jesus. That's the name that we boast in. And so in this section, Paul is directly addressing Team Paul. He's, he's addressing those that, that are lifting, lifting him up and boasting in Paul. He's telling them that he's not the one they should be boasting in. They should boast in Christ. Let's move on to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So verse 17 closes this section of Paul's letter, and at the same time, it kind of sets up the section that we'll study next week. But what I think is most important here is that this verse, it conveys Paul's mission. It conveys what Paul saw his role in the kingdom to be. Now, Paul wrote letters to the churches. Paul wrote the, a good portion of the New Testament. He planted many churches, he baptized people, he mentored men, he established leaders, he healed people. He did all of those things, but they were all byproducts of his purpose and his mission, which was to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, I didn't come to plant churches or write letters or establish elders, but Jesus Christ sent me to preach the good news about him. 
All those other things are important, but if the good news that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of man is not being shared, then all those other things are hollow. Let that be said of us, church. Let it be said that above all else, that Fathom Church is a church that shares and preaches the gospel of Christ. What is also important here is that Paul includes this phrase about not preaching with words of eloquent wisdom. He, he says that, when he, that he wants to preach not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, he does not want to be known to preach cleverly or with wise, funny, cool words, but he wants to be known to preach with words that tell the truth of the gospel and the truth of the cross. Because Paul knows that telling good jokes or funny stories or having eloquent or wise speech, if it isn't backed with the power and truth of the gospel, it will get you nowhere. If preaching is only wise, clever, funny, or eloquent, but it's empty of any gospel message at all, it might as well just be stand-up comedy or, or a good lecture. One commentator put it this way, saying, brilliantly persuasive eloquence may win a person's mind, but not his heart. Whereas the unadorned words of the gospel, though seemingly foolish by human standards, are made effective by the Spirit of God. Paul wants the message to be the focus, not the messenger or his words. And listen, at Fathom and in Acts 29 churches in general, we do value good preaching and good teaching. We believe that our elders must be able to teach, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. We believe that teaching is a spiritual gift, as we'll learn later in 1 Corinthians 12. Having the ability to not only expound and apply biblical doctrines and give spiritual insight into the text in a way that's relevant and engaging is very important. And the best preachers out there, the Matt Chandlers, the Tim Kellers, they can do both. You have both good speaking, but then also sound, truthful message. And church, I've got to be honest about this one. This is hard for me. I don't preach that often. I only preach a handful of times. But if I'm being honest, when I preach, I want it to be good. I want, people, I want to be able to engage people and teach people and hopefully help those who hear it to go deeper with, with Christ. Now, whether that's through humor or an accurate metaphor or application or a relevant il illustration, I want to do that. I want to, I want to preach well. But each time that I sit down at my computer to work on a sermon, my prayer is, Lord, let it be your words and not mine. Let the power of the Christ of the cross and the good news of the gospel shine through in whatever words I write. And as I was preparing this sermon, my prayer was over and over, don't let my words empty the cross of its power. I think it's a common temptation for anyone who preaches, no matter how frequently they preach, because, because we're all human. And Paul faced the same temptation. In a culture with other wise preachers and eloquent speakers such as Apollos, Paul wanted the words he preached to be full of the gospel of Christ and only the gospel of Christ, not to be wise or own, only eloquent words that were hollow in the message of Christ. He wanted to be full of the gospel. And next week's passage is going to go into this issue further. We're going to explore the issue of godly wisdom versus human wisdom. So, so come back for that. But Paul's point here is that the message of the cross and the power of that message is of utmost importance. And he doesn't want to give a false or misleading message by trying to say it in any way that will distract from that message. And so that's the first topic that Paul addresses in his letter to the, the church in Corinth. It's this issue of divisions in the church. 
The Corinthian church was divided with people choosing different teams based on different preachers that they liked or they preferred. So what are we to do with this today? I mean, this would never happen in a North American church, right? And definitely not here at Fathom, right? I'm being a little bit sarcastic because this happens all the time in churches. And if you've been paying attention, it effectively happened to us at Fathom last year. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail because many of us walked through this, this past season of our church's life but if you're new to Fathom or if you're listening online or if, or if you're not familiar with the recent part of our story, the gist is that in early 2019, Fathom's elders initiated some discipline action, disciplinary action towards our pastor, Chris Martin. And Chris was entirely submissive to the, the, the discipline and to the process that the elders laid out. However, not ever, everyone on staff at the time or attending Fathom at the time was aligned with the process. And effectively, Fathom divided fractions uh, factions and fractures occurred. Just like the church in Corinth. Just like the church in Corinth, our church in Littleton formed, formed these divisions. People chose teams. And, and I think for the most part, regardless of which team people were on, I think they would say that they wanted what was best for Fathom. But instead of seeking unity, despite many differences of opinion, people sought safety in the factions or teams that they aligned with. Instead of recognizing the differences and seeking to move forward in unity, unfortunately, some turned towards bitterness, anger, and divisiveness. Chris and I were discussing this earlier this week, and he used an application that I thought was pretty good. He said, it's like two countries who have a border conflict. They can have peace talks and try to work out a treaty where both sides can agree and move forward despite their disagreement. Or they can go to war and engage in trench warfare and kill each other. Unity in the church is the peace talks. It's the working towards a treaty and towards unity. Now, outside of the division and the choosing of teams and the people leaving Fathom, here's what else happened at Fathom in the past year. Planning for missions was put on hold. Many of our ministries, such as youth, worship, kids, and others, were thrown in the flux. Giving went down, creating challenges for our budget and reducing the amount of money that Fathom could direct towards missions. D groups were splintered. Relationships were damaged. Friendships ended. All this happened at our little church in the past year. When Christians can't get along, the body of Christ suffers. And I've made this statement throughout this sermon, and when I say that the body of Christ suffers, here's what I mean by it. When the body of Christ or the church has factions or divisions or fractures, it doesn't work properly. It certainly doesn't work the way that it was designed or intended. Its witness is damaged for those looking on and observing, and it becomes less effective or completely ineffective for the kingdom. In fact, this is what Paul is writing, is warning the church in Corinth about, and it's what he's warning Fathom Church about. There's great consequence to the kingdom when Christians disagree and divide. When they start forming or choosing their own teams instead of choosing Christ, instead of acting in the interest of Christ's body, the church. 
As I stated earlier, Paul isn't teaching uniformity here. He's teaching unity. Because we can disagree with one another while still seeking unity. We can disagree in a way that doesn't break unity. It's not all that different from what we face in marriage. The challenge of learning to disagree or argue well. Just because you disagree with your spouse doesn't mean you start taking, calling names or taking steps towards divorce. No, you talk and you work through it and you seek unity. This is hard. It was hard in Corinth. It was hard for Fathom. It's going to continue to be hard because I'm not naive enough to think that something divisive like this is never going to happen again at Fathom. But I want to exhort us this morning to focus not on ourselves or on our favorite part of the church or our favorite part of Fathom or our favorite pastor or favorite staff member or favorite elder, but rather shift our focus to where it belongs, to the cross, to the power that the cross represents to the person who died on the cross. Church, we're the body of Christ, both Fathom Church and the global church. We are his body. And if we're divided, if we're choosing teams behind our favorite messengers, then the most important thing, the message of the cross and its power is going to get lost. Let us not lose sight of the most important thing. The good news that God sent his son to die for us and our sins on the cross, to die for our self-focus and our tendencies to choose teams and fracture and to divide. Let's not lose sight of the cross, church. Let us instead unify at the foot of the cross. Let us above all else choose Christ. I'm going to close us this morning by talking through Paul's words to the church in Philippi. This was another church that also faced divisions. And Paul told them to choose Christ. He tells them to choose Jesus as their example and their focus. He says in Philippians 2, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Sound familiar? Passage in Philippians echoes what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He basically told the church of Philippi to be of the same mind, to have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Be humble. Count others as more significant than yourself. Look to the interests of others above your own. Paul then goes on to tell them to choose Christ, and he gives them really this, this poem about Jesus. And as we turn towards our time of response this morning, as we turn to the communion table, I want to read through this, this, kind of this poem slowly, as well as put it up on the screen. And I want you to hear this description of Jesus and reflect on it as we continue to worship and celebrate at the table. Paul says this of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the church. I thank you for your church, for your church body. And Father, I pray both for our church here, Fathom Church in Littleton, but I also pray for the global church. And Father, I pray for unity in this church. I pray that we, as, as members of the body of Christ, as the body of the church, would, would come to the church and would live in the church, not for selfish ambitions, that we would not choose teams and, and choose sides, but instead that we would choose to focus on Christ, that we would choose Christ's church. We would choose to put Christ's church and put others ahead of ourselves. God, in, e in each day, in each of our lives, let us choose Jesus. Let us choose Christ, the one who put others before himself, who did not set himself apart from, from us, but instead he humbled himself in human form as a servant. He humbled himself as the one who came to die for the sins of each person in this room. And God, I pray that Fathom Church would be united behind Christ so that we can operate as a healthy church, a church that's loving to our neighbors and our, to our community, that's attractive to the world around us in the way that we get along, in the way that we love each other, in the way that we love others, and most importantly, in the way that we love Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love your church. We love your son. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.